the cleansing of the temple. John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. My beloved brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we mentioned on Sunday morning in the exhortation, brethren and sisters, from the wedding in Cana of Galilee, which we considered in our last class together, our Lord Jesus Christ, as recorded here by John, went down to Capernaum, the city of Comfort. It's a Hebrew name, actually, as we mentioned also on Sunday morning. The village of Comfort, as it's better known. Quite a significant step by our Lord, brethren and sisters. And I'd like you to turn to the fourth chapter of Matthew, and I want you to see here how that Matthew, in recording the fact that a little later when Jesus went to make it his headquarters, had this to say about it. And in the fourth chapter of Matthew, we read in the twelfth verse here, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has sprung up. Now it's interesting, brethren and sisters, that Matthew records the fact that he left Nazareth and dwelt in Capernaum and immediately identifies that with the ninth chapter of Isaiah. And so when the Lord moved to Capernaum, even here in the second chapter of John, was an earlier incident, I believe he was signalling his attention of going to that little village and there to make that his headquarters because there, brethren and sisters, he was to go forth and to launch forth his official uh, campaign of preaching the kingdom of God and of bringing many people to see the righteousness of faith. It was to begin there. Officially, that is. And it's very interesting that both Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all tell us it began there. You look at the 17th verse of Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he had said that sort of thing, brothers and sisters, before that. He would said that to his disciples. But now there's a new stage of his work. And that new stage of work was that he left Nazareth and he went to Capernaum. And obviously the Lord now put a physical distance between him and his relations who were there at Nazareth that he might commence a campaign which was based upon a heavenly relationship which was pointed out at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. Now I believe that what's happening here in the second chapter of John is when the Lord took his mother and his brethren, and his disciples to go to Capernaum, I believe there was an attempt there, brethren and sisters, to try and get his family to see the spiritual import of what he was saying to make them his spiritual family. But for the moment there, he had two families. He had his natural family, and he had his disciples, his spiritual family. And that village of comfort would have been for him at that moment, brethren and sisters, very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable indeed. For you remember that it wasn't until later, much later, that his mother and his brethren came to see in their fullness that he was truly the Son of God and that halfway through his campaign they saw him as a madman even, bereft of his senses. And therefore I believe that that would have been a very uncomfortable situation in the little village of comfort. And so John says, and they continued not many days. I'll bet they didn't. 
would have been a very difficult situation for our Lord. It obviously didn't work out, brethren and sisters. His family went back to Nazareth, and as Matthew records a little later, the Lord severed that connection, he left Nazareth, and he came to Capernaum, and all the Gospel writers tell us, from that time, he went forth preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. Now, I haven't got time to turn a lot of these references up tonight, but just note this, that they all note that as a time factor from the time that John was put into prison and from the time he left Nazareth and he went to Capernaum. They all note that as a signal for the opening up of that great and glorious campaign. Galilee of the nations. Capernaum was right in that region known as Galilee of the nations. You know, brethren and sisters, when Peter went to Cornelius, Let's turn that one up because it'll again identify the time. So it's not just simply Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but in the 10th chapter of Acts, when Peter went to Cornelius, he mentioned this time factor. And quoting almost word for word from Mark chapter 1, we read from verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. And again, Peter reminds Cornelius of that factor. Why? Because in Galilee of the nations that was that started. And the thing the Lord was preaching was peace. Preaching peace by Jesus Christ. And then Luke adds this little comment, He is Lord of all. Why would he say that? Well, you get hold of Strong's Concordance, brethren and sisters, and run down the word peace, and have a look at several contexts in which it's used in the Old Testament Scriptures and in the New, and have a look at it. Peace, peace to him that is near, and to him that's far off. And the word shalom means to be at one. Peace, peace, says Isaiah, to him that's near, and to him that's far off. Zechariah 9 said, he will preach peace to the nations. Paul put it more plainly when he said, he is our peace, because he's broken down the middle wall of petition between us. And Peter puts it this way, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. And so there's the reason why our Lord shifted that camp. Because from there he was going to launch a campaign, a campaign, brethren and sisters, which was going to end in peace for all nations. All nations, that is, who would command that peace because they would follow his commandments. All nations who would obey him, that was going to end there. And it began in Galilee after the baptism which John preached. When John was put in prison, the Lord shifted camp started his ministry, and here's Peter reminding the first official convert of the Gentiles that if that was the beginning of the campaign, here is a repetition of it. And Cornelius himself, now in Caesarea, the Roman capital of the Middle East, was about to start another phase of that work based upon that phase of the work. He is Lord of all. So it was not without significance that our Lord shifted on that occasion. And it's not without significance that before that, he took his family down there with his disciples that he might, I believe, lay a foundation for his further operations in that wonderful city, the city of Capernaum. Matthew calls it in chapter 9 and verse 1 his own city. 
Mark refers to it as his home. And so our Lord found, brothers and sisters, some response in that city. Though later on, Luke tells us in his 10th chapter that Capernaum became exalted under heaven and would be dragged down to the depths of hell. For all the goodness that was shown to them, the bulk of that little village did not heed our Lord's, Lord's message. Though, of course, some of them did, such as Peter and Andrew and James and John, who had their very living in the vicinity. And when we come back to that second chapter of John, John records a quick visit that our Lord made to Jerusalem, and of course, which culminated in that very violent cleansing of the temple, when our Lord's zeal consumed him, with his, father, with his father's honour rather, consumed him with that burning zeal, and he cleansed that temple. Now we read in verse 13, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You read that again. The Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. See what John's trying to tell us, brethren and sisters? You know, it's John above all the other writers who refers to the Jews. Do you know something? That he refers to the Jews 50 times in his Gospel record. Whereas in Matthew, Mark and Luke, they average about five times. And in Matthew, Mark and Luke, the term the Jews comes in at the end of the record when our Lord is condemned. But all the way through John's record, he's telling us about the Jews have got this and the Jews have got that. There was the Jews' Passover. Chapter 5 and verse 1, chapter 6 and verse 4, a feast of the Jews. You see, brethren and sisters, God had nothing to do with it. They were taught from the very inception when they were called out of Egypt to gather their little family around their table and to tell them about Yahweh's Passover. That's exactly the expression of, of, of Exodus. They were to talk about Yahweh's Passover. But John says this was the Jews' Passover. God was not in it, brothers and sisters. He was just not in it. It had nothing to do with that one. And neither did our Lord. He went up to Jerusalem. He didn't go to the Jews' Passover. He went up to Jerusalem. And he found something, says the next verse. You know, the way that John writes this record is absolutely brilliant. You know, you just read it, you read it quickly, you missed the point. But look, the Jews are having a Passover. God's not in it. Jesus is not going up there to give a credence to their feast. He's going up to Jerusalem. And he found something. We know what he found. He found chaos and noise and mess in God's temple. And you know, brethren and sisters, the Jews were commanded in the same chapter where it was told them that they were to tell their children this was Yahweh's Passover. In the very context of being told that, they were told to make sure that their houses were clean before they kept that Passover. Because it was not theirs, it was God's. Well, this was the Jews' Passover and the temple was in a mess. That's what John's trying to tell us. He found that. And it later became, brethren and sisters, a Jewish tradition that when they made their search for leaven, previous to keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, of course, it became a Jewish tradition that the eldest son of the house was to lead that search. And he said, get this filth out of my father's house. He found it, didn't he? He found that place full of leaven. And it sickened him at heart. 
to see what they'd done to God's temple. And what had they done to God's temple, brethren and sisters? Well, let's look what they had done. In verse 14, this is what he found. Oxen, sheep and darts. Well, of course, they're all the animals which were used in the sacrificial code. Categorised under the what the Old Testament would call the cattle and the small cattle and the birds. And under those categories came all the offerings which were made under the law of Moses. And why did they have them there? Why indeed? Because they were telling them, brethren and sisters, that people might have a truly unblemished animal. And for the convenience of those who came from, a, from afar and who couldn't have brought animals with them. Oh, that's why they were sold there. That they might be unblemished. And that people might be given, of course, the opportunity. And it might be made easy for people to make their sacrifices. Why couldn't they have sold them outside the city? But there they were parked in that temple. And you know why they were parked in that temple, brethren and sisters? It was a mark of supreme contempt on the, on the part of the Jews for the Gentiles because they had occupied the Gentile section of that temple which made it almost impossible for any of the proselytes to the faith to get into that place in their own court. And they'd fill that court up with animals. That's what they thought the Gentiles were and worse because they didn't think they were even measuring up to those clean animals. They saw them as dogs. And they crowded them out of that temple. You know, they used to call that place, they had a name for it. Not in the scriptures, but in their traditions and in the history of the Jews. Josephus makes reference to it. They called it the Shambles of Annas. Because it was held under the, under the jurisdiction of the priests, mark you. And they had a marketplace of Annas there, right in God's temple. And you know, brethren and sisters, such was the shameless profits that they were making there at the exorbitant prices they were selling those, those animals that even one of the sons, one of the sons of one of the elders of Israel was forced by his own conscience to go down there and to make them put down their prices. And he was the son of one of the famous leaders in Israel. And he went down there and he said, you've got to put down your prices because it was a public scandal. And our Lord found it, didn't he? In the terms of Malachi, the Lord had suddenly come to his temple. You come back to that third chapter of Malachi, brethren and sisters. This prophecy has more than one application. And certainly our Lord had suddenly come to his temple. And in that last prophecy of the Old Testament scriptures, before our Lord was introduced into the world, the prophet indicted the nation for their shameless way in which they had desecrated God's temple. And he warned them in verse 1 of Malachi 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, John the Baptist in the case of our Lord, Malachi in the case of Nehemiah here, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. And what would he do? Verse 3, Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he's like a refiner's fire, like full of soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. And that's what he was trying to do, brethren and sisters. Now did you notice in those verses in Malachi, verses 3 and 4, the repetition of one idea? 
refiner's fire, full of soap, refiner and purifier of silver, purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold. That's why verse 6 says, I am Yahweh, I don't change. You sons of Jacob are not consumed, merely refined. But the refining process, brethren and sisters, is severe. But Yahweh doesn't change. They're not consumed, but they're refined. And that's what he was coming for, to try and refine the sons of Levi. In the end, because there are two cleansings of the temple, brethren and sisters, in the end when he threw them out for the last time and they gathered back in there again, God threw them out for 2,000 years. Not that it consumed them, he doesn't change, but to refine them. And the Lord whom they were seeking had suddenly come to his temple and look what he found. Just look what he found. Not only the animals, of course, as we come back to John, not only the oxen and the sheep and the doves, oh, but the changes of money were there, brethren and sisters. And if they were, if they were making a rake-off with the animals, these fellows, look, the others are like a Sunday school picnic in relation to these chaps. And those tables of the money change, what would they have that for? Well, you see, there was such a thing as the temple tribute, like a tax, like a religious tax, which the Jews had placed upon the people that they might pay for the upkeep of the temple. There was also the sum of money, the half shekel of the sanctuary, which needed to be paid every time there was a census taken. That's why the Jews had influenced the court of Rome that when censuses were taken, they could go to their own city to be taxed because they wanted to cop everybody. Because not only would they have to pay tax of the Romans, but then came a time because the people were counted that they would pay their tax to the temple. Now because many people would not pay it at that time, many of them would keep that until they went to Jerusalem. And so they would pay their temple tribute and their half shekel of the sanctuary. But... No way would these righteous men accept the coin with Caesar's image on it or with any imprint of idolatry on it or foreign words. No way could you bring that into God's temple and because you couldn't do that, we'll change it for you at a rate. And the historians mention, brethren and sisters, some of those rates. And we think we've got a rate, uh, some, some high interest rate. You ought to hear what they were charging. It was absolutely shameless what they were doing in that place. In that court of the Gentiles. And our Lord stood there, brethren and sisters, and he was utterly consumed with the zeal of his father's house. Consumed for his father's honour. And he couldn't contain himself any longer. And he got himself a scourge. And he made a scourge, it says, of small cords. He made it. You know, brethren and sisters, the word small cords simply means twisted rushes, twisted reeds. It wouldn't have been very effective at all, really. It was only a symbolic gesture. I don't believe the scourge was necessary at all. But it was in his hand as a, as a symbolic gesture. And grabbing hold of a few reeds, he plaited them together. And with a, a weapon that wouldn't have hurt anyone, really, he drove them out of that place, brothers and sisters, not with that scourge, but with the fiery indignation that was in his eyes, with the righteous anger that consumed him, and they fled before him, and not one single voice was raised in protest. And I believe there were two reasons for that. One, the very sight of our Lord was far greater weapon than ever what was in his hand. 
In the 18th chapter of John, verse 6, when they come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he turned and looked on them, they fell to the ground. He didn't need, he didn't need a scourge of cords, brethren and sisters. That was the first thing. And the second thing is that they were downright ashamed of themselves because they were publicly shown up for what they were. It was already a public scandal in that place. And people looked askance at that particular practice which was going upon there in the name of righteousness. Absolutely fearful the things that were going on here. And says John in verse 15, he drove them all out of the temple. In Hosea chapter 9, brethren and sisters, there was a prophecy about that. You imagine our Lord as he went about this task and his anger, righteous anger. And although, of course, in a fury of indignation, he drove them out. He never lost control, brethren and sisters, never lost control of himself, as we will see in a moment with a little incident that took place there. And in complete control of himself, with righteous indignation, he chased that gang of robbers out of that place. He drove them out of the house. Now, in, in Hosea chapter 9 and verse 15, the prophet said, All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them for the wickedness of their doings. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. And you might say to me, well, how would he know that that was a prophecy that he's going to drive them out of God's house? God's talking about their wickedness in Gilgal. You follow this with me, brothers and sisters. Verse 7 of chapter 9, they didn't know the day of their visitation. And those were the words that our Lord used when he rode into that city. If only you knew the days of your visitation. In verse 10 we read, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe fig tree at her first time. And the next thing he did was go looking for figs on the tree when they weren't there and all it had was leaves. He then went into the temple in verse 15. He drove them out of their house. They came out the next day and Peter said, Look, the fig tree's dried up from the roots. Look at verse 16. Ephraim is smitten. Their root is dried up. When we go into chapter 10, brethren and sisters, and down to verse 3, and their reply was, for now they shall say, we have no king. And we could add to the words, but Caesar. That was their response. At the end of verse 8, on the way to the cross, the Lord quoted these words of Hosea, as the women wept around him, he says, Weep for yourselves, for the day will come, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and the hills fall on us. And so there was a sweep of Bible prophecy there. All couched in, in expressions, going back to the wickedness of Israel and the land. But the echoes of which, brethren and sisters, resounded in our Lord's ears. The day of visitation had come, he hadn't found that fruit at the end of the, of the record when he drove them out of the temple for the second time. He drove them out of God's house. The fig tree was dried up from the roots. They screamed in the streets, we've got no king but Caesar. And he loosed the words of Hosea 10, the women that wept around him when he says, they'll say one day, let the mountains fall on us. And all of that took place at the end of the record when for the second time he drove them out of that house. But as the Lord went about the task on the first time, brethren and sisters, he knew he'd have to suffer that again and again to see that place desecrated like it was. So terribly desecrated by these people. Now back in John chapter 2, we read that as he went through that place, in verse 15 again, driving them out, 
And he poured out the changer's money and overthrew the tables. Now this time, the word is quite different. You know, the word here for the changer's money is, is different than the, word, than the word was used before for the money changers. In the first instance, it means the money changes. But the second time, the word designates, brethren and sisters, their ill-gotten gains. It's a word which means really a small coin as a percentage of what they had been changing the money for. And the Lord got hold of the table and he never overthrew so much the coins that were changed but the profits that were made. And he tipped it over and Rotherham says and the money changes small coins he poured out. And you can imagine him singling out the table in which their exchange rate was all stacked up there and away it went. All their rotten profits they were making in the name of religion. Absolutely terrible. And he overthrew those tables. Do you know what the Greek word means, brothers and sisters? Rather, rather, Strong says it literally means to overturn. Furthermore, he goes on to point out the word is repetitive. So he overturned, he overturned, and he overturned them. And that was going to be no more until he come. And although they continued for two more years or more, the day would come and it will be no more until he come, who's right it is. And he overthrew the tables of those money changers. And he drove out the oxen and the sheep. And there were the doves in the cages. And he says, take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. You know, brethren and sisters, the very fact that our Lord was to say about those doves, take these things hence, showed that there was a control to his anger. He didn't attempt to let the doves go loose or to smash open the cages, that would have created, I believe, an unseemly delay in the whole procedure. But you know, not only that, but if a dove is noted for one thing through the scriptural record, it is its beauty. The beauty of eye. The beauty of its, of its colouring. And much is said about the beauty of the dove. And the Lord pointed to those cages and says, take these things, hence. And he had no disrespect for the little bird but he had a thundering disrespect for those who were using those birds, and those birds, brethren and sisters, would have been provided for the poor. The poor. And when you think that these fellows were gathering in that court of the Gentiles in the name of religion, they weren't Gentiles themselves, they were, they were taking that money off their brethren. That's what they were doing. Filching their brethren under God's nose, right in his house, and thought nothing of it, and felt they could get away with these things. Get these things out. Nothing beautiful about that bird used for that purpose, brothers and sisters. It's a mere thing, and out they had to take him. Nobody challenged him. And of course, he then said to them, didn't he? Verse 16, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. My father's house. Truly, brethren and sisters, God had nothing to do with that feast, nor was he in any way related to their temple. But it did symbolise, didn't it, in the midst of the nation, it did symbolise God's presence in the nation, or it should have done to them. It did that for our Lord. When he was in that temple 18 odd years earlier, did he not say, must I not be about my father's business? That, that's the first time he claimed the divine relationship. Here it is again. And that wouldn't have been lost on the crowd. Don't you make my father's house a house of merchandise? 
And nobody in the wide world, brothers and sisters, has any right whatever to address God like that except our Lord Jesus Christ. We wouldn't dare say that to God. Even now in our exalted relationship around the table of our Lord, not one of us can say, my Father. He's our Father. We have a collective relationship to God and that's what we've got. But there's a personal relationship. And not one person in that crowd could, could say that, but he could say it. My Father's house. When he left that temple for the last time, he said, Behold, I say unto you, your house is left unto you desolate. That's what he said when the last time he went to the temple. Your house. And truly it was, brethren and sisters, nothing more or less. On the last time when he cleansed that temple, because they had cluttered up the court of the Gentiles, when he again repeated this performance, Mark records for us, brethren and sisters, that he said, take these things hence, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And you know something else? That's from Isaiah 56. But it's not only from Isaiah 56. You look at this prophecy of how the Gentiles will share God's glory in Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah. And look what it says, brethren and sisters. And these Jews had the audacity to think they could clutter up the court of the Gentiles because it was unimportant for Gentiles to be involved in God's feasts. Well, you listen to this. In the last chapter of this glorious prophecy, we read in verse 19, and I will set a sign among them. And I will send those that escape of them under the nations. To Tarshish, to Poland, to Lud, to draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto Yahweh out of all nations. Now, I want to just pause there, brethren and sisters, because we generally use that 20th verse to point out that the Gentiles will bring the Jews back to the land. They will. And there are many references in Isaiah which say that, but that one doesn't say that. But that's better rendered, but this way. And they shall bring your brethren out of all nations. Your brethren out of all nations. You say, where's the proof of that? Listen. Upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts. What are you noticing, brethren and sisters? No Jew would ever come to Jerusalem in those things. The law of Moses wouldn't let him get near the place with those animals and in those chariots. But, says God, they'll come upon horses, chariots, litters, mules, swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith Yahweh, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel in the house of Yahweh. And here are these cheats and thieves and robbers, brethren and sisters, in that place, justifying the sale of those things on the basis that it's best for people to have an unblemished animal or coin, justifying the position because these swine of Gentile have got no right here at any rate. And here's a prophecy telling them 
that not only will they come, but they're going to come on horses and mules and swift beasts, all unclean under the law of Moses. And says God, that will be just as clean as the children of Israel bring their offering in a clean vessel. Those material things won't make any difference to God in that day and age, brethren and sisters. It's a question of a new heart and a new mind, a new heavens and a new earth, as he, comes, as he says here. And they'll have to accept them on their horses, on their mules, on their unclean beasts, just the same as God accepted them in what they considered a clean vessel. And they got no right to set their, their, their market up there and to keep those Gentiles out. And even for the reason for those Gentiles, let alone, never mind about unblemished animals as if God cared for the blood of others, the blood of animals. Never mind about coins as if God cared about clean money. But God did love the world, brethren and sisters, and they blocked them out with all that filthy marker. But Isaiah the prophet clearly portrays, from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith Yahweh. What? From one Sabbath to another all flesh would come? Well, the Jews came on one Sabbath and then the next. So the clean people attended that Sabbath and that Sabbath. But, says God, all flesh will come from one to the other. As if they were doing God's service by coming once a week. Well, from one Sabbath to another, he says, will all flesh come and worship before me. And they thought, brothers and sisters, that they were unique. That's what they thought. And they thought that they were perfectly justified in occupying that space because God wouldn't care a rush whether the Gentiles came or they didn't. Well, they were wrong. And while we're back in the Old Testament, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Do you know what that means in the Greek? The Greek word means a place of traffic. Look at Zechariah 14, brothers and sisters. You know, Isaiah, in Zechariah 14, we know how the prophecy finishes. It finishes with those very words, doesn't it? And there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of Yahweh of armies. And we all know well, brethren and sisters, the word Canaan comes from that word which means to bend the knee, to supplicate, and is used in the context of those who bend the knee because they want to soften you up to make a sale. They were merchants and, and traffickers in all sorts of merchandise. Make not my father's house a place of the Canaanite. And who was doing it? The Canaanites? No, the Jews. And so Zechariah, going back one verse, says, In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses. On the bells of the horses. Holiness to Yahweh. A very symbol, brothers and sisters, of Gentilism. But upon the bells of those horses there would be holiness to Yahweh. And the Canaanite really is those Jews who were cluttering up the court of the Gentile. They were Gentiles in heart and in spirit. They were dogs of the worst sort. Greedily gobbling up all the poor of Israel in the name of religion. They were dogs. And there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of Yahweh. It didn't cure them, brethren and sisters, did it? From that last Passover, when he went in again, he added, Mark added these words, didn't he? He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. 
so that it got worse and worse. They were downright thieves. That's taken from Jeremiah 7, brethren and sisters. Have a look at the context. Jeremiah 7, verse 11. The prophet was to say to Israel, Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? That's the words the Lord's quoted. It's become a den of thieves. What's the context? Well, says the prophet, says God to the prophet. Verse 2, stand in the gate of Yahweh's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all ye of Judah that enter into these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh are these. And there the prophet stood, brethren and sisters, in the 13th year of Josiah, 12 months into one of the grandest reforms of all history, when the people were pouring into the temple, chanting those wonderful hymns in which they appropriated to themselves the right that God should dwell with them. We are the temple of Yahweh. We are the temple of Yahweh. And he stood in that gate and he called them all hypocrites as they went past. And you imagine our Lord standing in the court of the Gentiles. Now you try and picture the scene in your mind. With the court of the Gentiles, onto the court of the women and the court of Israel and through to the holy and most holy places that the Gentiles were way on the outer part of the court. But you know, brethren and sisters, as he stood there and took in that scene, you try and picture the scene of the court of the Gentiles littered with straw and animal droppings. You listen to the sheep and the oxen bellowing and, and barring out on that place and you hear the cooing of the doves and the shout of the trader as they bargain for things and put forth their prices one against the other and the changing of the money standing up and crying out, he'll do this and do that. And way over in the background, hardly audible in the din and the confusion, you might hear the strains of a few holy words out of the lips of those other hypocrites that were further on in the other courts. And the Lord stood there and took all this in and he thought of Jeremiah's words. It's absolutely a den of thieves. And yet they were all there in the name of religion. And mingling with the temple hymns was the shout of the trader and the belling of the animals. It was absolute confusion and utter degradation. And he could stand it no longer. Any more than the prophet Jeremiah could. And in verse 8 of this, cha- of this seventh chapter of Jeremiah, Behold ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. They did trust in lying words. And because in verse 10 it says, You come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. And that's what they were doing in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, We, we, we can't trust in words that are no profit. You trust in, in lying words that are no profit, he says. And they were lying. They were telling lies before God. They said, they had a right to sell there because they were only making available unblemished animals and changing foreign money so they could have pure money. And they justified their presence in God's house by saying, we're delivered to do all these abominations because the Gentiles are an abomination. And God is trying to tell them, brethren and sisters, he's not a bit interested in animal sacrifice, he couldn't care less about money and he loves the world. And he's trying to get all nations into that place. And he wants it a place of beauty grandeur, of harmony, of singing, of glory, and not a mess like they had it. Any wonder that our Lord took that scourge of small cords and couldn't stand that any longer and drove them out of that place. And as the disciples watched him, coming back to John chapter 2, they were enthralled with this, brethren and sisters. Oh, they were enthralled with this. This is what they were looking for. This is the Messiah. This fitted in with all their conceptions of him. 
And we come back to that, seven, that second chapter of John. And what do we read? In verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. In verse 22 we read, When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered something else. It took a lifetime, brethren and sisters, of our Lord. It took his death and his resurrection and his appearance and his words to convince them of certain things which only then they remembered. Not until then they remembered them. But one thing they remembered immediately, that when he picked up those reeds and twisted them together and launched forth on, on that tirade of anger and absolutely drove them all out, they remembered immediately that it was written, the zeal of thine house have eaten me up. Because you see, it fitted in with their conceptions of our Lord. Here he is, the hero, the hero Messiah. He's going to clean that temple up and in, any, in, in about five minutes, God's kingdom is going to be on the earth. He's going to go in there and sit upon the throne as king priest and it's all going to be set up there. And truly, this is the Messiah. They remember that it was written. Now I want to show you something. The zeal of thine house had eaten me up is half a sentence. They remember that. Now we don't even have to turn back to the Old Testament to read the other half. Because the Apostle Paul's going to remind them the other the half they forgot. In Romans 15, and you look at the context of this. They remembered half a sentence. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 2 we read, For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. That's the other half of the sentence. Psalm 69, brethren and sisters, in that verse says this, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen on me. When they saw the Lord in blazing indignation, righteous indignation, they remembered the first half. It took a lifetime to remember the second half. And so Paul adds this in verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. What a absolute master touch of inspiration that God, brethren and sisters, should choose such an apostle with such an astute mind to pick that half sentence to remind them that whatever was written was written for their learning, even if it didn't fit in with their conceptions of Messiah. So let's all think about that. There are times in our lives, brethren and sisters, when we can quickly remember the references which fit our conception of things or which are sympathetic to our cause. It sometimes takes a lifetime to remember the other half of the sentence which has to do with our obligation to others. For even Christ pleased not himself. And Paul choosing the very title of its own, Christ, even the Messiah, who, if anyone was strong, as he's talking about weak and strong, if anyone was strong, who's stronger than Christ? But he didn't please himself. And when it comes to our obligation to others, brethren and sisters, we forget. But when we feel that we are due for some sympathetic consideration, we remember all those references which fit in with that conception. Isn't that human nature? I know I do that. I can always 
always remember the things I want to remember. But I choose to forget the things I want to forget. We all do that, brethren and sisters. And it's a, a master touch of inspiration that John records that and Paul records that and says, now whatsoever thing, whatever thing was written for, is written for our learning, even the other half of the sentence. Isn't that absolutely marvellous? You know, that verse said, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Well, the word zeal means what it says. Actually, it's the Greek word zealos, anyway. So it's, it's where our English word comes from. It really means to be hot, to be full of ardour. And what got our Lord hot was the zeal of God's house has eaten him up. You see, it was zeal for his father's honour. You know, brothers and sisters, I think again it's true to say that in a spiritual sense, if there's anything that annoys a true Christadelphian, it's to see the father's name dishonoured. I think above all else, we can take a lot of insults, we find it extremely difficult to see God's name dishonoured. And that, I think, indicates that we are thinking like the Son of God because that's what consumed him. Had eaten me up. Actually, the Greek word means to eat me down. Which, of course, is the same as eat me up. You eat a thing up, you eat it down. That's the same idea, really. But the literal meaning is to eat down. Is to take it right into your body. And you see what was happening, don't you? He was standing in the court of the Gentiles. Just a couple of courts further over, there were animal sacrifices being consumed by the fire of that altar. And the, in the holy places of the Jews where they felt that the divine fire was consuming their sacrifices, here's our Lord Jesus Christ in the court of the Gentiles and the fire of God's honour is consuming him as a total dedicatory sacrifice. And he launches that attack against those bestial men who were in that place. You know, brethren and sisters, it's Matthew who records very succinctly for envy they delivered him. They were eaten up too. The word envy is a far cry from the word zeal. It means to have ill will. You see the difference in attitudes. All John is trying to tell us that whatever our Lord did, which some men might brand as violent, whatever he did, there was an absolutely pure motive. However angry he might have got, brothers and sisters, it was purely righteous anger. He never lost control. It was the zeal of God's house that was consuming him. And in that, there is no haphazard way. There is no madness in that, brethren and sisters. It's not an anger which has gone into an, un, into an uncontrollable situation. It's completely under control. There is an absolutely pure motive for it. As there was a motive for them. For envy. They were eaten out. They delivered him. You know, they came back, didn't they? And they said, in that second chapter of John, miserable hypocrites, brethren and sisters, they really were. Then answered the Jews, and they said unto him, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? What signs? As the apostle says, the Greeks seek after wisdom, and the Jews seek after signs. They were running true to form, brethren and sisters, always wanting a sign. Later on, in the, in the later incident of the cleansing of the temple, the expression was, by what authority doest thou these things? And from their viewpoint, of course, they thought, well, the Lord must have almighty authority to do this. One thing to go into a person's house and to clean up his house, this is the temple of God. Brothers and sisters, they needed no authority. Nobody had challenged the action. 
There was the sign. They were self-condemned. Nobody stood in his way. After all said and done, he's only a mortal man. I mean, looking at it from their viewpoint, he's only a mortal man. He's only got a few reeds in his hand. It's not as if he's Superman. It's not as if he's armed to the teeth. Nobody was stood in. Why didn't they? There's your sign. The very fact he did it was sign enough. They didn't need another sign. But you know, brethren and sisters, he had all the signs in the world. You know, he quoted the words of Jeremiah, didn't he, in the later incident? And God told Jeremiah, he commissioned him. And when God commissioned this priest from Anathoth, north of Jerusalem, to stand before the people with a hard attitude towards them, a face like flint, and to be strong and courageous, he said, I, says God, I anointed, he said, I appointed him a prophet to pull down and to destroy, to build and to plant. Well, he had that authority. He could pull down, he could destroy, and he could build and he could plant. And if Jeremiah the prophet had that authority, so did he. The Lord, brethren and sisters, was not concerned with giving them then and there a sign. They had that sign. No one challenged it. When you don't challenge a thing, it's tacit agreement, isn't it? You don't challenge it. No good meekly coming up later and saying, well, what authority you did that? It's too late then, brethren and sisters. You've got to ask that on the spot. But if you're convicted on the spot of your own hypocrisy and your thievery, then there's your sign. And the fact that you say nothing the fact that you flee before the righteous indignation is sign sufficient to all of us, or it should have been to them, that they were absolute hypocrites and thieves in the bargain. What a sign. Who wants a sign? And the Lord gave them a sign. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. That's interesting. You know, brothers and sisters, they never, ever forgot those words. Funny, isn't it? They couldn't remember the things that he taught. I suppose there wouldn't have been a handful of those people of this crowd, of that ilk, could remember a single word of the Sermon on the Mount, but they never forgot that. You turn with me to the 14th chapter of Mark. They hung on those words. They twisted them, but they hung on to them, and they never forgot them. And when the false witnesses were found against our Lord Jesus Christ in the 14th chapter of Mark, they came forward in verse 57. And there rose certain and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. That's what they said, brothers and sisters. They remember that right at the end of his life. Chapter 15 of Mark. And in verse 29, they remembered it while he was on the cross. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. They remembered those words, brethren and sisters. But you know they didn't. Do you know what they remembered? They remembered a perversion of those words. And you see, those scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had a vested interest in that place, had got hold of those words that he said and twisted them and they drummed them into the ears of the people. You ever seen that done? Somebody says something that you can just add an inflection to it and drum it into the ears of the people. You say it long enough, it'll be accepted. He never said, he never said, I will destroy this temple. He never said that. The very words imply, you destroy it and I will raise it up. That's what he said. But they got hold of those words. They knew that they could twist that. 
And they knew that in the hubbub of the excitement, brethren and sisters, the people would not really remember what he said, and they got everyone to believe that he said, I will destroy this temple. He never said that. And right to the end, at the foot of his cross, they were casting that in his teeth. And I believe that one of these days, brethren and sisters, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and every idle word will be taken into account. And we've said many things in our life, in our Lord's name, that he never said. And you can imagine that crowd coming before him and many of them, if, if not all of them, are responsible to judgment, being Jews, having the, the former knowledge of the truth in the law, dragged before the judgment seat. What did I say? You said you would destroy the temple. Show me where I said that. Never said that. He said, I said you would destroy it. And they did. They did, as I'll show you in a minute. They destroyed that temple, brothers and sisters. But you know, even though they twisted his words, isn't it, isn't it absolutely remarkable? But it's only John that records those words, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. But it's Matthew and Mark that record that the Jews said it later. They didn't record it in their gospel writings. And so here is one of those undesigned coincidences which show the inspiration of the scriptures. John doesn't say that at the end. Matthew and Mark do, but John said at the beginning. But Mark, in his account, tells us that Jesus said a little more than what John records. Because they said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And within three days I will build another made without hands. And I believe the Lord did say that because they wouldn't have been astute enough to work that out. And although they would have twisted the words, I will destroy, which he never said, I believe he did say, as Mark records they said, and they reported that he said that this temple would be made without hands and that the one would be destroyed was one was made with hands. Isn't it interesting? They wouldn't have been astute enough to work that out. Because it was Daniel the prophet, wasn't it, which said that the rock was cut out of the mountain without hands. A divine work, brethren and sisters, and there's no way that his enemies would put that there unless he actually did say that. And as the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, that our Lord entered in once into the holy place, not made with hands, he says, into the holy place, not made with human hands, but into that wonderful holy place created by God for his Son. And into that, brethren and sisters, to heaven itself he walked and sat at the right hand of the Father. And there he is, in a holy place made not with human hands, that he might mediate on behalf of all humanity. And so there was the words of our Lord Jesus Christ twisted, and there they were quoted. Now, he was talking about them destroying that temple, wasn't he? He said, destroy this temple. In other words, you destroy it, and I will raise it up. It's interesting, you know, brothers and sisters, that in that second chapter of John, in that verse 19 that we've been reading there about that temple, that in verses 19, 20 and 21, the Lord uses a completely different Greek word for the word temple than is used in the other places. Not that it's unique to those three verses, but in this context it is. And whereas they were using a term which means the temple in a general area, he started talking about a naos. He started talking about a place to dwell. That's what it means, to dwell. And the, Hebrew, the Greek word naos, which you sometimes see printed in Eureka as nave, N-A-V-E, designates the most holy place. And our Lord's words, brethren and sisters, put literally like this. The word destroy 
doesn't really mean to destroy in that sense either. He didn't use that word to destroy. He used a word which means to take down in pieces. And he says, you take this down in pieces, this holy place, and I will raise it again. And Israel surely should have known, brethren and sisters, that their fathers in the wilderness spent a lifetime taking the holy place down in pieces. And it kept getting raised again. As a matter of fact, when they left Sinai, uniquely when they left Sinai, when they took it down in pieces at the foot of the mount of the law of Moses, uniquely as not ever before in their march till it came to the end, the ark went before them for three days. And they turned up with the tabernacle and built it around it. They took it down in pieces, but it kept getting raised up again, didn't it? All right, it was done by law. They would never have perceived those things. But this is what the Lord was trying to tell them. You can put up and take down and do what you like. But I will raise it up. And when he used the word raise too, he wasn't talking about building. He was talking about awakening. The word in the Greek means to wake up. To wake up, I will wake it up. When they reported his words and the false witnesses, they said he would build it. He never said he'd build it. He said he'd awaken it. And you see, you see, brothers and sisters, they never accurately reported him at all. He was talking about a most holy place. He was talking about taking it down and he would awaken it. And of course, you don't awaken a building or you don't awaken even a tabernacle. But he used that expression deliberately because he's talking about the temple of his body. So mixing up his terms, he's trying to get them to see. He's not talking about literal things, but spiritual things. But they did, it went right over their head. But his words didn't. They made an impression upon their minds and they twisted them. He said he will destroy this temple and he said he will build it again. He never said anything of the sort. He said, you destroy this temple and I will awaken it. And he did, brethren and sisters. He did. In the 19th chapter of Luke, you know, it's rather interesting in the 19th chapter of Luke that be just before the Lord cleansed the temple for the second time, he reminded them who was destroying the temple. It wasn't him, it was them. And in the 19th chapter of Luke, we read this, verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least, and this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, and thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation, Hosea. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold, and so on. And so you see, just before he goes into that temple, for the last time to clean it up, brethren and sisters, he reminded them, he says, listen, the responsibility for the destruction of this temple is yours. Because of your continuing disobedience, God will destroy this place. He'll not leave one stone upon another. And he immediately went in and started cleaning it up. So you see, he did mean they would destroy it. Now here's an interesting thing, brethren and sisters. You listen to this. Look, he said, you pull down at this most holy place and I will awaken it. I will raise it up. But he didn't raise it up, did he? His father did. You see, he's using the personal pronoun. I will raise it up. But we read in Acts chapter 2 and other places that God raised him from the dead. 
And of course we know exactly what our Lord meant because John adds his testimony, does he not, brethren and sisters, that he says, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. What commandment? The commandment to do his Father's will. And he knew if he did his Father's will, there was a moral guarantee that the temple would be raised. And what the Lord's trying to tell them is this. I have a moral guarantee that the temple will be raised and I'm giving you an immoral guarantee that you'll destroy it. That's exactly what happened. And by their continued disobedience, that temple got destroyed. And by his continuing obedience, brethren and sisters, his temple body got built. So you see, they twisted his words right around. And of course, taking him literally, trying to make the Lord look foolish, back in John chapter 2, they reminded him that the temple had been 46 in, years in building to that point. 46 years it had been in building, brethren and sisters, to that point. We read that in John chapter 2 and verse 20. Then said the Jews, 40 and 6 years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Now it was more than 46 years in building, you know. To that point it had been 46 years. It was started, so the historians tell us, in B.C. 20. Herod the Great started it. Didn't do it because of any love of the Jews. It was purely a political act to ingratiate himself upon the Jewish people that he might rob them. He had no love of the Jews. He had no love of anyone except himself. And he started that temple, and it wasn't finished, brethren and sisters, until A.D. 64 by Herod Agrippa. Six years before God destroyed it as if he let them complete it and gave them the number of men to, to, to fill up the measure of their iniquity and then brought it to nothing. 46 years was this temple in building. And you know, as the Lord stood there and, the, and all this gang of thieves around him trying to belittle him, you know, brethren and sisters, it wouldn't have been difficult if they were dealing with any other man but our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read you a short description of that temple. This is one historian. The temple was a marvel to the world for its colossal substructures of marble, its costly mosaics, its fragrant woods, its glittering roofs, the golden vine with its hanging clusters over the entrance door, the embroidered veils woven with flowers of purple, the profuse magnificence of its silver, gold and precious stones and standing in the midst of all that magnificence they tried to make a fool of him. But they didn't understand, brethren and sisters, that he spake of the temple of his body. And that, of course, that glorious body, resurrected body of our Lord, would defy the magnificence of that temple. No doubt about that. And we will see that, brethren and sisters. We'll see that. Then let the world say to him, they'll destroy him. And see whether or not when we see him as he is, the world will take him apart. Imagine our Lord standing there in that situation with all that rabble in that glorious place that had taken to that point 46 years and went on to be built for 20 odd years more. Such magnificence. And yet he, didn't, he, said, he knew, he didn't understand that he spake of the most holy place of his body. Now the interesting thing is this. That when in the writings of the Apostle he was to draw out the implications of those words of our Lord Jesus Christ he spoke about the body of Christ. 
which body we are, brethren and sisters. And when the apostle, penning his words to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians, he spoke about your bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God dwelling in you, that we are the temple of God, he uses that word naos. Not the general word for temple, that word. Because Paul could see the implications of our Lord's statement. When he talked about his body, brethren and sisters, it's a single body truly. He's talking about himself personally and in a corporate sense when all his brethren and sisters are in that body and how beautiful they will be. And then you'll see the costly stones, the substructures, the mosaics, the clusters of the vine, all of which that temple was symbolic. Then we'll see it, the mosaic of life, brothers and sisters, the mosaic of life built into those characters, the clusters of the vine, the brethren and sisters sticking together through thick and thin, growing out of the Christ, Christ stock, sapping up his goodness and bringing forth fruitfulness to God, the substructures of marble, the foundations of the truth, the embroidery of God's character, written and engraved in our hearts, not on stone, brothers and sisters, but in the fleshly tatters of heart. That will be glorious. The silver and the gold, redemption and faith, far exceeding that temple, they never understood that he spoke about the temple of his body. Never saw that at all. When therefore, says John in that 22nd verse, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You know, brethren and sisters, it's often said that when John ran to that tomb and looked inside that tomb, that he believed the scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's not true. Look, in that 20th chapter of John, you read it with me. It wasn't until our Lord was risen, until the body was actually raised, that they remembered these things. And even when John saw that empty tomb, he believed all right, but what did he believe? You listen to this. In the 20th chapter of John, we read in verse 6, then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, that is John, which came first to the sepulchre. And he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. See, brethren and sisters, the Lord said, you destroy, you take down this holy place and I will awaken it. And it wasn't until that happened that they remembered and believed the scripture. And when John looked in there, he believed the Lord had risen. He was absolutely convinced of it. But he still hadn't related that to the Bible. You know, brethren and sisters, you can believe anything. But if you don't relate it to that book, it's useless. John had to see far more than just an empty tomb. He's got to relate that to the scripture. Now coming back to John chapter 2 and verse 22, listen to what John says. When therefore he was risen from the dead, and not before his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and believed the scripture, singular, singular. You know, John uses the expression, the scripture, ten times. In all but one place, brethren and sisters, in all but one place, and that's a bit doubtful, in all but one place he's referring to one 
scriptural passage. And it would appear here that he's talking about the scripture. What scripture? And although there were many scriptures concerning the resurrection of the dead, there was one scripture, brethren and sisters, which the disciples, once they'd remembered, never forgot. And you know what that was. Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Psalm 16 and verse 10, and that's the scripture I believe that John's talking about. Very specific reference to God's holy one. God's holy one. You destroy, you take down this holy place and I will awaken it. Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And when he had risen from the dead, they remembered that scripture. So do they remember it that you find in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts 13 it's quoted. But brethren and sisters, it's not only quoted, but it's used by Peter and by Paul in vastly different circumstances, separated by great distances of miles apart from each other. It's quoted by the two of them in exactly the same way. And they both make the point that there were two tombs, David's and the Lord's. One was full and one was empty. And David said this in Psalm 16, check that tomb and check that tomb. And both Peter and Paul made that point that David could not be speaking of himself because it was a historical fact that he was still there. And it was also a historical fact that the Lord wasn't there. And therefore Psalm 16 was talking about that empty tomb. And then they remembered that after he was risen because he's no longer in there. And then John related it all to the word of Jesus. He remembered the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You know, brethren and sisters, there you have the final step to conviction. You know, you just imagine it. John beholding this wonder, the Son of God. He sees him heal the sick, to give sight to the blind. He knows he's a man came from God. He listens to him. He hears the Sermon on the Mount. He hears the other teachings of the Lord, the parables. He stands aghast at that teaching. But he still hasn't seen that that's the word made flesh. He knows it must be, but he hasn't made the connection. And when he became the risen Lord, he raised up that most holy place. It all fell into place. John knew now that the scripture said, the scripture said he must rise, and everything that he's spoken is related to the Bible. And now it's very meaningful, brethren and sisters. And when the Lord, of course, left his disciples, in Luke 24, he made that point. That everything he said, everything he did, was scriptural. It was all related to the scriptures. And they never saw that before. They believed him. They knew he was a teacher come from God. But that it was all in the Bible. It was amazing. Verse 26 and 27. He told them, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter in his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they said in verse 32, and they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And the Lord related all those scriptures to himself. And he says, look, you remember when I said that? Yes, Lord. Look, it's in there. Oh, it is too. Remember when I said that? Yes. Well, look, it's in there. Oh, it is too. And they saw now, brethren and sisters, not only beautiful words, wonderful teachings, but they were all biblical teachings. And so he opened up their understanding. 
or rather he opened to them the scriptures. Now it's one thing to open the scriptures. That's difficult enough. But in verse 45, he left them with something even greater than that. What's greater than just opening the scriptures, brethren and sisters? Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And as we leave this place tonight, brethren and sisters, I hope and pray that in some small way that we have been able by God's grace to open the scriptures. But unless you, along with myself, apply ourselves to the word, that's all we'll ever get. And you'll always be dependent upon someone to open the scriptures. But when through the scriptures someone opens your understanding that you might understand the scriptures, you have an inestimable privilege of being able to do what we're doing tonight in the privacy of your own home. And that's a marvellous privilege. And when the risen Lord had stood up in life and the holy place came alive and awake, brethren and sisters, and they saw it for what it was, everything related to him, the scriptures fell open and then they had a clue as to how to go about interpreting themselves. Their understanding was open that they might understand the scriptures. And away they went into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature, the basis of which was the risen Lord. The Jews had destroyed it, or they thought they had. They'd taken it down, but it was up again. It was erected again. And all over the world, brothers and sisters, little temples got set up. The temple of Christ's body was set up everywhere and became the dwelling of God by the power of his spirit word.